Any questions? Uh, no, no, I'm happy to just dive dive right in. So many, so many, so many damn books. Hello and welcome to So Many Damn Books, a blessing, a curse, a podcast. My name is Christopher and I am joined in the damn library hyperspace with Tom Ailing. Tom Ailing is an antiquarian bookseller with an enormous online following, particularly on TikTok, where he's currently sitting at almost 200,000 followers and 4 million likes on his videos. I've never had anyone on from TikTok before. I've never had a social media um, star on like you want before, Tom, and I'm so excited for you to be the one um, because I absolutely love your videos. I'm the person that is on TikTok. Um, and so I'm the one who's sending your videos off to them when, when something pops up and it's like, oh, I know you're going to love seeing this. Um, but thank you so much for joining me. Any, that's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on and for your your very very kind and generous introduction. Well, Tom, I uh, I would love to get in. I want to get into um, your world because I absolutely love it. And I my I was trying to sort of figure out what I would do um, to serve you a drink. I basically found that there's a, a large antiquarian cocktail library online. Um, and one of the very first ones, this is the from the very first guide aimed at bartenders, um, the 1862 Bartender's Guide by Jerry Thomas. And I was so surprised as I was flipping through to find jello shots. I mean, they called it punch <laughs> jelly, but I just thought it was so interesting that from the very get-go, we were making large and it, there's notes in it that says like be very careful when you're eating this stuff because this process hides the taste of alcohol completely so i was thinking about that and uh, i've uh, also been watching a ridiculous cocktail show on netflix and and i wanted to incorporate punch jelly into into my mix so of course punch jelly just means that i made some jello shots i made a triple sec and uh lemonade jello um with pectin instead of using you know store brand jello uh i highly recommend doing this partially because you can mess with your own sugar um and if you infuse your sugar with lemon lemon peel before you um start making your lemonade it really makes for a full this crazy lemon flavor and then i added in um some gold shimmer into the into that jello and i've sort of shaved it off and made what i call gilded pages of of um jello that i've then covered in a uh, brute sparkling wine and it's i'm calling it the gilded edge i feel like it is something that it's quite silly of course but it's also i don't know i i i think it's funny that from the very first we were serving this terrible thing that are gonna that's gonna give me extremely drunk yes no they're, they're wonderful those those sort of old vintage cocktail guides um both both from sort of seeing you know what what people were drinking, you know, a century and a half ago, um, but also then trying to to resurrect those recipes and and make them now. You know, in 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 my in my attempts to to follow your recipe, I, I discovered that I live in a small village in the in the countryside here in here in England, and and couldn't unfortunately get from my local village grocery store the the necessary sort of elements to make the jelly <laughs> shots. So I'm just I'm just neat champagne. 
Oh, um, lovely. I'm so glad you can join me. So cheers. Yes, cheers. Um, yes. I'm, I'm one step away, though, from one of my favorite literary cocktails, which is um, Death in the Afternoon. Oh, yes. Um, but Ernest Hemingway's uh, great cocktail, to, to, to which all I would need is to add a dash of absinthe. And we'd be we'd be off to the races, and I might I might not make it through this interview in one piece. Um, so we we decided to forgo that today. Oh well, I uh, I appreciate you know trying to make sense on the podcast. That's <laughs> that's a lovely goal. Coherence is desirable. Yes, I'm I'm fascinated by the way that alcohol is talked about in those old guides. Does your store carry any of the? vintage cocktail guides or any vintage cookbooks mm. yes we do we i mean the sort of predecessors to those vi uh, sort of vintage cocktail books which as you say sort of they tend to come about in the sort of mid to late 19th century um and sort of gather steam a bit into the 20th century but we have books about you know wine port and sherry which was a huge deal in in england um in the sort of couple of centuries before that and England was really the the great import market for um, the great winemakers of of France and Spain, and, and as a result, you had lots and lots of really interesting books written about about wine by people like Charles Tavy in the nineteenth century, um, and also cookbooks from that you know from that era. They sort of develop from uh, the how the, the the cookbook in, in itself is quite an interesting one because you. Um, often those 19th century ones are a housekeeper's guides you know mm -hmm. they're there for it wouldn't be you know anyone in the household using it it would be their staff referring to it and it would be this general reference book you know like mrs beaton's household management that would take you through yes uh cooking and the pre pre preparation of food and all different recipes and the different cooking technologies that were available at the time but also all the other things that went into into sort of running a house successfully um, but then as you move into the 20th century, you get one of my favorite cocktail books, which is Harry Craddock, the legendary Savoy um, barman, the Savoy cocktail book, which is not only one of the great cocktail books of its or any period, but one of the great pieces of, of Art Deco book design, the striking silver and green front cover and the the wonderful um sort of two-tone illustrations that go throughout the book are just absolutely to die for. It's such a wonderful book. And it's the sort of thing we, you know, we try and get our hands on every single copy we can find because there are so, so many people that that want one. It's um it's a really cool thing. Well, and it's the type of thing that they're even really doing lovely vac facsimile versions. Mm. You can you can you can own one that isn't actually from the time period for yeah, a regular amount of money. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's one. It's one of these books that 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 has been sort of reproduced in exactly the same form it it came out in, for that reason, so that so that a modern reader can can access those recipes easily, um, but also sort of revel in those those beautiful illustrations and, and decorative elements. There's something about drinking that really brings out people's design philosophies <laughs> and elements, like that art. All the Art Deco design of of drinking just makes it look so elite and lovely and just like everybody's having the most incredible time yeah well it's the same thing you know think of think of the television adverts that you see now for um you know alcohol companies whether it's yeah. a beer or a 
or a spirit company, it's always incredibly attractive people doing extraordinarily fun things, you know, rather than some poor old sod drinking alone in a corner. <laughs> um, so, so yes, I suppose that's sort of the long, the long history of, of alcohol and advertising. Yeah, we've, we've got to just show the lovely parts, of course. Yes, no, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would love to hear then, I mean, there's a section on this show called What Did You Buy? If you've picked up anything for the for yourself, um, in it for your personal collection, or or anything that's come into the store that you were excited to purchase from a collector, mm, uh, well, perhaps perhaps I can do one from from the bookshop, which I've been working on this week. I mean, books are we're acquiring books all the time, um, both things that come in for stock or uh, or come in, you know, with a with a specific customer in mind who's who's asked for one and sort of sourcing it mm-hmm. for them if they're someone we've worked for um for a long period of time. I should just say that the shop is called Yonkers Rare Books in, in Henley on Thames in Oxfordshire. Um and and anyone listening and and anyone who isn't is very welcome to come and visit us. Um but we we got in this week a really wonderful little book. It's a collection of poems by John Betjeman the great English practitioner of light verse, defender of traditional architecture, and later in his career, a television personality. Mm. Um, and he's one of those one of those really interesting characters who came up with, you know, the bright young things of 1920s, 1930s Oxford and literary life, um, but didn't die young. You know, he kept going throughout the century and um, sort of became, went from poet to television personality. In, in really rather an interesting way. But the book that we got of his poems isn't really anything about him. It's about an inscription that's in it, because when you open it up, it's a book that was published in 1945. And when you open it up, there's an inscription that says, for my dear love, Christmas 1946. Mm-hmm. Now, I saw this book, and the first time I saw it, there was no attribution to who'd written this inscription. But I immediately knew who it was because their handwriting, to to me at least, is is clear as day. It's very distinctive. It's not all that legible. Um, it's a sort of small, succinct, scratchy crawl, and it's Graham Greene's handwriting. Oh my god! And it was a Christmas present that he gave in 1946 to his wife Vivian. Um, which is a really wonderful thing in its own right, you know, a famous writer gifting another famous writer's works to to their other half, a really wonderful association copy is what we call it in the book trade. But this takes on a, a certain, I guess, heightenedness because Christmas 1946 would be the last Christmas they spent together. Mm. He had met about three weeks before this book was inscribed a young lady called Catherine Walston actually was introduced to her by his wife, Vivian. And that Christmas, he'd begun his affair with her that would later be fictionalized in one of his great books, The End of the Affair. Um, and in, in, in mid-1937, he, he left home for the, for the last time and, and left his wife in, in an event that is fictionalized again in, in his 1955 book, The Quiet American. Um, so it's a it's a book that contains layers and depths of 
of meaning and of someone's personal lives that transcends both the text that that book holds and the book itself as an as an object. Um, and that's exactly the sort of book that you know gets me excited and that I love finding and that our our customers love you know adding to their collections those books with with that kind of story behind them where they take on more than you know more than just the sum of their parts. Wow. That is unbelievable. And so this this came in this did the person know what they had or did you see it in the, in a collection of books or what, how did it come into your into your hands? Uh, for this for the sake of not breaching any anyone's oh. confidence i i can't say exactly how we how we came by it we bought it with a with a collection of books um and it was unattributed the um the inscription but it it so happened that it came with other things from vivian green's estate there was a another book of john betchman poems that was inscribed by betchman to her and there was a Christmas card from John Betjeman to her, and there was a, a calling card mm -hmm. that John Betjeman had left for her at her house. Um, so that sort of tied together the Vivian Green connection and making that that extra step. You know, it was it's it was undeniably to to someone who's seen as much Graham Green as many Graham Green manuscripts as I have that that was his his handwriting, and that sort of tied tied it all together. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. I I just think that that's that is extremely cool. <laughs> I love that. Well, I I received a couple of things in the mail uh, that aren't nearly as storied. They're just new stories that are very exciting. This um, two novels that came out in January of this year that I'm extremely excited to get to. Um, one is called "I Keep My Exoskeletons to Myself" uh, by Marissa Crane, and it's pitched as um, a Jenny Offal Department of Speculation type of novel, but about a uh, dystopian surveillance state, which I love that sort of melding of taking a very literary and um, poetic distance and applying that to sci-fi, very interesting. Um, and then I also got this book called Emily Wilde's Encyclopedia of Fairies by Heather Fawcett. And it's the type of book that I love, which is about a scholar whose research gets them into trouble. Um, it's it's a great subgenre, and this one is a, um, a an English folklorist trying to study fairies and finding real ones in her studies, which is a fun thing to do. I love that premise. Yeah, that's really amazing. It it makes me think of Arthur Conan Doyle and the the Cottingley fairies. Do you know that the, the story of those? I do, but I want to hear you tell it. <laughs> well, it's it's this wonderful, wonderful hoax that I mean, Arthur Conan Doyle, aside from being the creator of Sherlock Holmes, was also really into spiritualism, particularly later on in his career in the 1920s and 30s, and wrote a few books on the subject. And he was sent, or he received, or he saw, I can't remember exactly the way that they came to him. These photographs, which are now known as the Cottony Fairy photographs, and these wonderful little Victorian photographs, sepia-toned of um, little girls in the countryside, and seemingly these dancing fairies in in the background. And he was absolutely enchanted by them, just as someone of his, you know, imagination and curiosity might be in a in perhaps a, a less cynical time 
time than ours, or certainly in, in, in himself personally, less cynical than many of us. And he absolutely bought that that this was real and wrote about them. And they became quite quite famous, of course, until it was totally debunked. And I actually managed to see uh, about, when well, it was pre-pandemic, so it was probably four or five years ago, copies of those original photographs, as well as the camera equipment that was oh. used to, to, to take them, um, that had been in the family for, you know, the last hundred years or so. Um, so that was, that was pretty fun, but I, that, that premise of that, that book, that sort of a, a, a scholar's sort of curiosity or belief in a subject, getting them into trouble. Mm-hmm. It, um, I love that as a, as a narrative device. And I read almost no modern fiction, but that sounds like something I should check out. <laughs> I was going to ask that. Um, I do remember the there was a, uh, a movie that came out in like, I believe it's 1997 or so, called Fairy Tale, A True Story, which is a d- dramatization of, okay. yes. of the Cottingley fairies, which is how I, I knew it and, and became fascinated by the pictures, which I, I used to keep a postcard of one up on my wall because yeah. I think like there's something about getting pe- to people to believe in something magical that mm-hmm. I think is worthwhile, even if it is ultimately a hoax (laughs) yes well they're quite beautiful and ethereal photographs in in their own right if you just take away the um the i suppose their sort of afterlife as as the subjects of this 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 hoax um you know in the in the if you take them in the sort of history of fairy illustration which runs from you know victoriana fairy lands right through fairy tales of the 20th century to Cicely Mary Barker's flower fairies you know they're they're beautiful things in their in their own right so tell me about the fact that you don't read a lot of modern novels is that is that really more of a, a professional um you know something that falls by the wayside because of your job or is that just not not where your interests lie I would say it's the former rather than the latter. I'm interested in contemporary fiction. And before I was a someone who was a bookseller exclusively in antiquarian books and, and rare books, I worked as a bookseller in a shop that sold new books. That was my entry into bookselling. And so for that time, I was doing that for about two years. I was absolutely obsessed with modern authors and the literary calendar and um, and sort of contemporary contemporary literary life and would you know, devour novels in proof form that we were sent by the publishers and then eagerly await their publication date so I could sell it to our customers. Um, but it's it's just a sort of, I suppose, just something that's happened that, that that has to a degree fallen by the wayside. I don't think in 2022, I read a novel published that year, um, which I think is probably the first time for a long time that that's happened in, in any year. Mm. Um, and again, it's not out of any prejudice against modern writing. I think there are some absolutely extraordinary writers at work today. It's just a sort of that thing we all face. We only have so much time for reading and reading that directly relates to to what I do for work is takes precedence. Um, and also my, most of my recreational reading happens to be rare book reference, history, book history, all sort of adjuncts to, to the day job. I would love to hear that from the beginning, um, how you came to start selling 
antiquarian and rare books. Certainly. So as I mentioned a moment ago, I got into bookselling while I was at university in St Andrews up in Scotland, which is a beautiful little uh, cathedral town on the northeast Fife coast in Scotland. So you have to imagine, you know, dramatic cliff edges, a castle perched on the rocks in a ruins of a cathedral falling into the ocean. And it was a really magical place to, to live and study and, and work for four years. And about halfway through, a, a wonderful new bookshop opened in the town called Topping and Company. And I thought, oh, that's really what I should be doing to earn a little bit of money rather than working behind a bar or something or, or waiting tables. So uh, that's what I did. And it was the most wonderful educational experience being uh, working in a place like that. I think that as we go through life, we we learn things in those sort of two contexts. You learn things academically, and then you learn things in those vague cultural institutions that are quasi-academic, but not entirely. And and the impulse for learning has to come from, you know, from your own curiosity. And that's how I find bookshops. They're they're wonderful places. And one one learns as much from just exploring those and reading things that jump out to you as as one can from a course of quite rigorous academic study. Um, so I love the environment of the bookshop and I discovered that I loved the the actual act of selling books. I think previously I thought selling anything was some some sort of low trick but <laughs> but that was just my prejudice but actually doing it and getting excited about books you're passionate about and recommending them to people. I mean the art of recommendation is something one could spend a whole podcast on its own talking about especially as it comes to to books because that's all over um all over a bookish life is receiving recommendations and choosing which ones to act on and which ones to perennially park by the by the side of the bed mm-hmm. um but that whole process i absolutely fell in love with and alongside that almost exactly because of what i was doing my actual research on at university I was using the University of St Andrews Library's special collections, their wonderful collection of old and rare books as an adjunct to my study, because most of the books that I needed for what I was doing were long out of print and not available any other way. And some things the library itself didn't even have, so I had to buy them. And that's how I encountered the sort of secondary market for books, which is a totally different world to working in a new bookshop like Topping. And... I sort of ended up falling into collecting books in a very casual way, really, to begin with. But, you know, collecting first editions of authors I was interested in and collecting books that directly related to what I was doing in my studies. And I utterly, utterly fell in love with the idea of the world of old and rare books. And when it came to the end of my degree, I sort of had a choice to make. Was I going to keep going with the book selling or go down the other career path, which was what I thought I was going to do, which was um, stay on at university and become an academic. And I ended up actually moving down to London for a couple of months and continuing my studies with a view to going into academia. But about two, two and a half months in, I I really missed book selling and saw the sort of my future life as an academic spanning out before me. And I just thought it it wasn't for me. It's a wonderful and fulfilling career for many of my friends, but it just wasn't a good fit. And 
a couple of weeks later, I saw an advertisement for a training antiquarian bookseller at Yonkers Rare Books in Henley on Thames, which was rather close to where my now wife then lived, and it worked perfectly. So I um I started working there six years ago, and it's been the most wonderful educational experience and professional experience I think you could you could ask for. I absolutely adore what I do. Wow. It seems like, yeah, the everything lined up like to make like a golden path for you to follow towards that. Well, I think that's how things always look in in hindsight. But, you know, in it, 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 actually going through it yourselves, there are lots of late nights wondering what on earth you're going to do with yourself and thinking, oh, have I made a terrible mistake? And all that that anxiety and nervousness that I think comes from being young and in your 20s and and being, I think, you know, artistically or culturally or um, inclined towards literature and not really knowing how you're going to make a living doing, you know, working in a field in which you love. And that's something that I struggle with and some I struggled with and something that I know a lot of people struggled with. So it, it seems, you know, step by step, um, mm-hmm. linking up really nicely in, in hindsight, but but it certainly wasn't in, in the act of doing it. So if you're halfway down that road and listening to this, you know, don't worry, there is a there is a way. <laughs> that's uh, that's that's nice um, motivational uh, reminder to our listeners. I would like to know more about what a typical day in the shop is like, and or maybe a very non-typical day as well. <laughs> yes, well, I mean, it it could be anything. That's part of the part of the interest and the joy with with what I do. I mean, the typical day is I get to the shop quite early in the morning, and I film, you know, a few videos that I'll have written scripts for the night before videos for social media. So we post on TikTok on my account, and I paste videos on Instagram on uh, the shop account, Yonkers Rare Books. And that's the start of the day. And then the shop opens at 10 o'clock. And then, frankly, anything can happen. And that's not because, you know, you open the door and there's all sorts of, you know, uh, all sorts of mythical beasts waiting to beat it down and come in. But because no two days are the same. So I could be cataloging books that had recently come in. Uh, cataloging, if your your listeners aren't aware of it, is what we have to do to, to every single book that we sell. Every single book that we sell comes with a full written description of it and its history and any pertinent details about it that are unique to that copy of the book that you're buying. And that's really, really important as a people in, in modern parlance like to call it a certificate of authenticity, um, which is not a phrase I'm particularly fond of, but you know, our catalogue description is our guarantee. This is what you are buying. This is everything you need to know about it and its history and what's happened to it in the 400 years since it was first printed, you know, maybe, you know, in the early 1600s or or whatever it might be on that occasion. So cataloguing is a big part of what we do. Looking for books is the other big part of what we do, whether that's visiting people's libraries, people bringing books into the shop, traveling all around the country, visiting other booksellers, visiting auctions all over the country, or viewing them online all over the world, going to book fairs again, all over the UK and all over the world, really looking everywhere that we can to find books that our customers might be interested in. 
And then the third part to that is, of course, the, the business of actually trying to sell these books. So offering them to people, um, having people into the shop to, to look at things or just to browse and help them to the extent that they need help with that. Um, and they're the three main parts of the, the job of the bookseller, you know, mm-hmm. the finding and acquiring of the book, the describing and cataloging of the book, and then the finding the right home for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are lots of things that happen on top of that, like we exhibit at book fairs in the UK and all over the world. So I'm actually coming to America in February um, for the Pasadena um, book fair. Mm. It's the the flagship California book fair. So that's February 10th to 12th. And then I'm over in New York in April for the New York Antiqu- New York International Antiquarian Book Fair, which is April 27th to 30th. That's the biggest fair of its kind in the in the world. It's really the main event in the in the calendar of the rare book world so it's always exciting to to do that show and to do the the california show i've been to both uh, i'm from california and yes. I, and they're they're in, that is an incredible book fair i the P- pasadena one also just because it's just gorgeous weather all that every yes. time <laughs> yes it um, makes a nice difference to have california february weather rather than english february weather i i say <laughs> You mentioned um, finding the right homes for books, mm. and that's something that is totally fascinating to me. First of all, that you have these relationships with private collectors who are who just tell you a title that, or a, I assume they just tell you like, "I'd like to find this type of book," and you are the one to start looking in the in the ether for it. Well, well sometimes it's as simple as that. You know, that's. I suppose the most straightforward way that something can work, it's just the fulfillment of a request. You know, Mm -hmm. someone wants a first edition of The Great Gatsby, so you go out and find them a first edition of The Great Gatsby. Um, But that that is, and that's quite straightforward. But the the real work with what we do is really working with collectors over a, a longer term period helping them build their collections and this is where we come back to that that thing of recommendation mm-hmm. you know, you're you're introducing them to books that that perhaps they don't know about you know we have people who are very serious say graham green collectors or evelyn war collectors or any other 20th century writer you, you care to mention and you know you can you can offer someone a book and they say I've never heard of that. Mm-hmm. And that's because it's some, you know, it might be some rarity that they dashed off in a private edition of 25 copies or something of which only a handful survive or or something, you know, something of that nature. So it's through those sort of long-term relationships that you can build these collections for people. And the, the other advantage of that really is that, um, you know, if we know you want something, then you'll get first dips. Mm-hmm. You know, we can only we can only sell any of these books once. So um, being first in line is, is, I suppose, quite advantageous from a collector's perspective um, for getting their hands on the best stuff. I would say that the vast majority of the books that we sell don't ever make it, you know, up on our website or into our catalogs or into a TikTok video because it's already sold before it's, you know, made publicly available. Um so that's one way that we find the right homes for books. The other, the other side of the um, selling selling process, I suppose, in addition to private collectors, are institutional collectors, major libraries around the world, um, both in Britain and America and and on the continent, uh, where we get something that would really fit with their collections. 
if there's a particular hole in their collections or there's a particular author that they're voracious in collecting their manuscripts, for example, then in many instances, that is the best home for it. And we will offer them first dibs on that particular particular item and give them all the flexibility that they might need to to make that acquisition. I am so fascinated by how many facets there are to this, because it just seems like there are so many different ways that you are called into service. Um, and and it's also interesting when you think of these books, because we 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 are looking at books that you will not be the last owner of, hopefully, like you're just a steward of its of its life for its time on your shelves. No, I mean, booksellers are incredibly transitory in that journey. You know, we we are the the most temporary of owners and the people that we sell the books to are in many cases temporary owners as well. And as much as I'd like to think that, you know, if I sell a book to the British Library, you know, the great national library of, of my country or to the Library of Congress in America or the Bibliothèque Nationale de France in, in France, that it will be there forever. Mm-hmm. That if you study the history of libraries, you'll know that our, our concept of forever in those instances is about 150, 200 years. And, and one can't have such, such guarantees. Um, but anyway, we have to do the best we can and find the best homes we, uh, we can for them for now, at least, you know, in the hope that they'll be cared for, you know, in 100, 200, 300 years time. I understand if you don't want to answer this next question, but I'm curious if you ever worry about the welfare of books that you're selling to not someone you know at all. It's just a customer off the street and you're thinking to yourself, oh, you're going to take that one. That's my favorite of whatever that is. Like I I was the steward of that and now you're going to take it. And hmm, are you the person that I thought of as the owner of that book? Is that something that goes through your head for for um, for being a, a book's steward? I can't say that it has. I don't think that is a feeling I've experienced. Whether that's just out of good luck that I've never had, you know, someone who I, I don't know, thought thought disreputable or uncaring, um, acquire one of the books. But I mean, it is the nature of temporary stewardship that um, that you know it's not it's not yours forever, and you can only control so much. And you know, in addition to the, you know, our temporary stewardship is to a certain degree a commercial imperative. You know, if we don't sell any books, we don't make any money, and we can't keep the lights on. Right. But 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 you know. Even you know anyone buying a book from us themselves, they're not a a permanent steward of it either. Because you know, I hate to break it to you, but life too is transitory as well as book ownership. Um, <laughs> so you know, even if a book were to fall into the wrong or, or careless hands, perhaps for for a year or two, um, I, I I would have confidence that it wouldn't be gone forever. Does buying books for the store satisfy that sort of, I want to acquire books instinct that book collectors have? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I collect books myself in a small way. Um, I collect books about St. Andrews, the town I mentioned earlier where I went to university and, and the history of the town and its university over the last you know few centuries. So by having a small, very specific book collection of my own, I can satisfy that psychological defect for ownership of objects. <laughs> and, you know, 
Um, and also, you know, keep keep stay stay sharp and stay aware of the sort of needs of of private collectors by being one in a in a small way, but also in a way that doesn't really interfere with the stock that we have. We chiefly deal in English literature um, in its broadest scope, you know, from Chaucer right up to Harry Potter. Um, so there's not much St Andrewsiana that um, that makes its way through the door that um, that would test me or tempt me um but also i suppose an adjunct to that is that it, in many ways i mean acquiring books is is really really fun but seeing the joys in in someone's eyes when they're holding a coveted book for the first time perhaps even in trembling hands is a much much better feeling than than ownership for me at least mm. um, so that that sort of feeling of selling books and the fulfillment of finding the right home for them is a, a much better day's work than any book I bought for myself. Hmm. That's a lovely answer. I love how you prize that feeling of discovery. It seems like it's such an important part of this trade for you. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's sort of two pronged, I suppose. There's the sort of the, 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 the essence of discovery or, finding which is just you know laying your hands on the damn things you know we, we call them rare books for a reason and that's because they're difficult to find so when you manage to um to find one for your customers or or for stock that's a nice feeling um but then there's that sort of second order nature to discovery which is the things that a book can tell you as you look more closely at it as you look at its inscriptions or annotations or the way that it's printed or the way that it's bound or the way that it's illustrated or any of those other clues that can tell us a bit about the you know the life that it's lived for the last 50 or 100 or 200 or 500 years mm. um and those two senses of of discovery both the sort of finding and the finding out um are, are i think what makes um that side of the job so so rewarding you have another side to the job that you've made up for yourself i uh which is the book talk world the TikTok account um which is of course how i discovered you and how we're sitting here today uh how did that start how did you want to make videos well it started i suppose during lockdown where we couldn't see customers we couldn't show them books in person and so for the first time the way we'd convey a book to someone um would not just be through the catalog description and the photograph but we might take a short video and send it to them and i i did this for a while um with a few different customers on things they were thinking about and i thought oh it might be fun to put some of these up on tiktok and and see what happens and of course like everyone posting something on TikTok, absolutely nothing happened mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but for a very, very long time. Um, but then in, in, I would say, sort of late 2021, I posted a, a video of the first edition of Pride and Prejudice that we had in stock. Mm. Um, a very basic video, you know, just me behind the camera filming it and, you know, sharing different aspects of the binding and the pages and, the first time that the words it is a truth universally acknowledged and so on appeared in print and that went 
I suppose it went viral almost instantly. And I, I wake up the next morning to just a barrage of comments and likes and views and, and new followers and so on. And I thought, okay, there might actually be be some appetite for this. I'd been wanting for a long time to find a way to make engaging video content that made more people want to get into book collecting. It's still a very sort of niche specialist hobby, mm-hmm. even within the niche specialist hobby that is liking books for, you know, reading books. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose that's always been to a certain degree a, a minority interest and book collecting has, has always been a, a, a minority enclave within that minority, I suppose. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm really passionate about getting as many people interested in book collecting as possible and using videos as a way to do that, I thought would be a good idea. So I started investing a bit more time into the videos um, and throughout uh, last year, throughout 2022, really sort of went went all in on it. Um, I posted about 450 videos last wow. year on TikTok and dedicated an immense amount of time to it and the way we presented it and the way I'm introducing book collecting to people. Because one of the unique things about TikTok, I suppose, is that for the most part, my old mug just pops up on someone's For You page and they have no idea who I am, what I'm talking about or what credentials I have. Um, so using it as a conduit to sort of introduce people into into book collecting and answer their questions and making this this amazing world that I and other booksellers operate in feel as as exciting as it is um has been really really wonderful and yeah it's just gone um it's 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 gone you know last year was it was incredible the amount of people who watched my videos or came to see us at book fairs as a result of the videos or came to the shop or became customers or maybe just bought a a special one-off gift to just you know get that feeling of what owning a, a rare book is like um it's been it's been really quite extraordinary it's taken me aback to a to a certain degree one of my absolutely favorite um series you did was your sort of overview of getting started as a book collector and looking at what you could buy at different levels of investment in the hobby it's a fantastic series i'm going to link to it in the show notes and on on so many damn books, uh, dot com on the episode page because I think it's a great way to get to know uh, the TikTok content and it's such a yeah. fun. There is just a lot of great information in those particular like um, sort of they they felt like class like how you can do this you can do this too um, yes and, and, and in a nice way hmm. well there is a sort of a, a um, an image that that I'm quite keen to correct of, you know, what a book collector is and what book collecting is. I think most people think of some stuffy, stuffy cigar smoke filled mahogany walled library with volume after volume of leather bound books. But I can't think of a single collector I know who has such a dismal library. Frankly. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's 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 not like that at all, and it's not just about extraordinarily expensive or, or valuable books either. You know, you can get started collecting, spending relatively small amounts of money, say the same amount of money you'd go out and spend on a new hardback. And if you're curious enough and hardworking enough, you can still find really interesting things and be, build really interesting collections. Um, certainly, you know, if you want to 
collect first editions of Jane Austen's novels, then you're going to need to spend tens of thousands of dollars at a time, if not hundreds of thousands for the first couple. Um, but if you want to collect Jane Austen in an interesting way, you can still do that. You can buy, you know, as many paperback editions of Pride and Prejudice as you can. Mm -hmm. And in such a collection of books, you can chart the way that the novel was marketed throughout the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And that's a really engaging way of, of building a collection. And if you're looking to collect books on, you know, an incredibly limited budget, then I, I would encourage people to think of books that might be boring or uninteresting on their own. But once they're part of a wider narrative, they take on new meaning. You know, they they become more than the sum of their parts. Um, and that's what such a thing can do. You know, a paperback copy of Pride and Prejudice isn't particularly exciting beyond being a, a vessel of the text for the text for most people. But if you can tell the story of the way that Pride and Prejudice was sold and marketed and read over a hundred year period, that's a really compelling and academically interesting and valuable thing um, to do. And potentially, uh, you know, won't cost you anything more than the price of those paperbacks. Like, you know, there's no point. A... There's no there's no reason why such a collection would cost you more than that, um, in, unless you begin to corner the market and drive up prices, I suppose, if you're <laughs> in, in, incredibly acquisitive. Um, but no, those are, those, those are books that, that aren't rare. You know, they exist in, in multiple, multiple, multiple copies, thousands and thousands of copies, um, which means they aren't going to be that, that expensive. But you can, you know, by amassing them, create something that is rare, which is all of them in one place, telling one story. You brought an incredible book uh, that sort of, it could give you inspiration on the type of things you would like to collect. Uh, this book, Speaking Volumes by David Pearson, um, the subtitle Books with Histories. I tore through this partially because it's just absolutely gorgeous um, scans of some really incredible finds that he's, it really does feel like a guy just, you know, got you into his library and he's like let me show you 200 things that i really love <laughs> yeah really really fun and it's it's basically like an ode to the magic of annotation and the different things we do to books that make them our mm. own um what what made you what what interest does it hold for you because i felt like as i was reading this that this must be stuff that you know up and down well that it it, it it discusses phenomena which I know all over and which I'm dealing with every day. You know, questions like who owned a book? Who are these annotations? What do these annotations say? How do they add to our understanding of a book? How is it bound? Who bound it? What, what does the binding say about who initially owned it or what's happened to it since it was published? And these are all things that come up every day as I'm cataloging books. But it had some really interesting examples of all of those things that are sort of, I suppose, best in class examples, not just, you know, this book was owned by, you know, some gangrenous duke in the 18th century, but this book was owned by someone incredibly interesting. And this is when they bought it and why they bought it and what happened next to it. And I suppose that the, the essence of it is that most books about books 
which is something which is a genre that I read a lot. It, it might come as a little surprise. <laughs> are about everything that happens up to a point that the book is published, right? So mm-hmm. they're about the way it was printed and um, the way it was originally issued by the publishers and how many copies it was issued in and all these standard bibliographic points, perhaps the the process of writing it from manuscript to proof to first edition. Um, but this actually isn't interested in that sort of perfect form of the book that leaves the printers or the booksellers or the publishers. It's interesting to all the things that that can happen next, where it stops being this, you know, beautifully printed object in an edition of, say, a thousand identical copies that goes out into the world and things start happening to it. And those things tell us a lot about the book itself and how it was received by the society into which it was published and every subsequent society that has interacted with it or read it or owned it and all of those people and their histories and their stories and what happened to them in their lives and then the afterlives of it you know who owned it next what happened to their library um there's books that got you know there's books from um the famous cotton library which is one of the great collections of manuscripts ever assembled that ended up being temporarily in a house actually named Ashburnham House. And guess what happened there? There was a fire. Um, and some of the greatest greatest manuscripts, uh, one of the greatest manuscript collections ever assembled, was damaged by it. You can see in there, you know, charred copies of the, the Beowulf manuscript that's now, mm. at the, now at the British Library in, in their care. Um, and there's all, all those incredible stories are just like you know that's my version reading about that sort of thing is my version of a jack reach novel or any sort of easygoing beach read you know i'm just you know it's just i i want to i want to eat it up and there's some there's some great examples one of my favorites is there's a a book in there um a, a collection a volume of robert burns's poems that's published in philadelphia in 1841 now that's not a particularly rare book or a sought-after edition. It's published fifty years after the author's death, and those poems had long been in print. But when you look inside that book, you can see that it has an inscription by Frederick Douglass, and in the inscription, he is giving the book to his son in eighteen sixty-nine. And then you turn the page again, and there's a second inscription by Frederick Douglass, and. That says that this was the first book bought by him after his escape from slavery, which happened in 1838, and that he's owned the book for 30 years and is now passing it on to his son as a keepsake. And in those in those sort of three instances of sort of looking at the book, relatively unattractive edition of Robert Burns's poems, to seeing the first inscription, which is holy shit what an incredible association copy to going over the page again and seeing the second inscription and that is just absolute book collector delirium frankly um it's it's holding about as much history as a as a book can hold mm-hmm. and one of one of the one of the wonderful things i think about this is the dates of it you know he he escaped from slavery in 1838 but that book wasn't printed in philadelphia until 1841 so he must have spent at least three years saving up to buy his first book. Mm. 
And he recorded the exact time he bought it because he could recall the date 30 years later. So it must have been hugely personally important to him. And therefore, in that case, we have a book of poems by a well-known Scottish author that becomes this great object in the history of slavery and the abolition movement um, just by the mere application of some ink to paper 160 years ago. It's an, it's an incredible thing. The, the book is full of, full of that stuff too. Mm. I mean, like I, I little, he tosses them off like they're nothing, you know, sometimes he doesn't have an example for it and you're just like, it's just whetted your appetite. Like um, to just talking about John Milton's annotated copies of Shakespeare just like I would like to see all of those because I you know it's it's the type of thing that thrills me too like uh I remember going to the Huntington Library and seeing um Charles Dickens's reading copy of A Christmas Carol that he had marked up with like the ways that he likes to um read it which because he liked to read it on Christmas those things make me so excited and I really liked hearing that um Karl Marx sent Charles Darwin a copy of Capital, and you could tell when he stopped reading it because he didn't cut all the pages past like the first third. Yes, yes, that's no, wonderful. Do you, do you want to know about Milton's copy of the First Failure? Yeah, I, I happen to know a bit about that. So it's it's a copy of the First Failure that's held by an American library, and some pictures of some annotations in it were published in an article a couple of years ago by a scholar called um, Claire Bourne. And these were seen by a Cambridge academic called Jason Scott Warren. And he was reading them in a, in a volume of collected essays on, um, on material texts, I think. And he immediately saw that pang of recognition in the handwriting that we talked about earlier mm-hmm. and thought, God, that looks like Milton. Um, <laughs> so he, he sent Bourne, I think, so the story goes, a DM on Twitter and said, have you ever considered that this could be Milton's handwriting? And he then went on to um, develop this theory further, look at other examples of Milton's handwriting from the same period, the way he annotated books. And through a close analysis of the the comparison of, of the hand, he put this theory out there in a really understated blog post on the website of the Cambridge Center for Material Text, which he he runs, um, and received, I mean, it was an incredible discovery that was put out in quite a casual way, you know. I think I've just discovered Milton's copy of The First Failure. Um, <laughs> and he was sort of slightly admonished by Milton scholars the world over, who were not only convinced, but rather disappointed he hadn't made more of a meal of it. Um, <laughs> um, so it's an incredible thing, and it's since been exhibited as Milton's copy of The First Failure. And the annotations in it are quite interesting, because in it, Milton is correcting the text of The First Failure from other copies of Shakespeare's plays printed around that time and and before it. Um, So where things don't quite match up, he's scribbling in the margins. Where they don't include the prologue to Romeo and Juliet, he's writing it out in full. He's making cross-references to other books published in in the 17th century. It's quite quite a remarkable object. And 
perhaps my favorite thing about it is that here we're seeing Milton interacting with Shakespeare in real time. And then nine years after the first failure is published, Milton has his very first appearance in print in the second failure of Shakespeare's plays in a poem, uh, a sort of dedicatory poem to the, the brilliance of Shakespeare. Wow. Um, so it's it's quite a quite an extraordinary book. And I think the reason that it's not gone into in more detail in, in David's book is that that discovery was sort of happening towards the end of his writing process and preparing the, the book for publication. Um, but it is, you know, perhaps the greatest example of one great writer of English literature interacting with another within the pages of, of one of their books. It's a, it's a, yeah, mind boggling object to get one's head around. Absolutely. And, you know, David also makes this great point of that, like, this is of course, extremely exciting, but I am, he is also just as excited about a farmer's copy of, you know, just their farmer's almanac that they've corrected the weather in you know, that, that sort of um, inscription and, and dedication. I, it, it makes me want to write in my own books, which I do not do, um, really. I keep, I keep reading journals and things. I don't really write much in the actual marginalia. And I'm starting to think that maybe I should. Like, that's what, that's what he's sort of saying. It's like, come on, everybody. We need yes. to. The, the book historians of the future will thank you. Yeah. Um, they don't yes, want no, my clean copies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, something that the that Victorian book collectors liked to do was to wash the pages of their books to remove ownership inscriptions and marginalia because their ideal copy of a book was this sort of, you know, pristine, clean state with nice blank margins. Mm. Um, and in doing so, they've eradicated, you know, so many of those stories that can tell us more about books and how they were received and how they were read and interpreted throughout the centuries. Um, but no, that that sort of reverence for the the everyday book and for the stories of ordinary people, in addition to those great stories of, of famous figures, is, I think, one of the distinguishing features of, of this book among, you know, many books written about about book collecting. Um, one of my favorite things in it is the, this incredible frontispiece illustration, which um, which I was looking at just before we came on. Um, and it's what's known as a memorial binding. Um, so where you have a very, very dark, in this case, a black book binding that is made in, in honor of someone who's recently died. And in fabulous 17th century gilt lettering stamped on the front, it says, Read this book for the sake of Susanna Lady Dormer, who is not lost, but gone before to the celestial Canaan. And I just think that an object like that, made by the grieving children or widower of a 35-year-old woman nearly 400 years ago, is now, you know, in the safe care of Durham University Library, and is a, a really intensely intimate object to behold and reckon with but it's exactly the kind of everyday object that though we don't really know who she was mm. or what she meant to the people that loved her you know we have this remnant of her 
in our world 400 years later. It's, it's quite an extraordinary thing. I feel like I've experienced that on a small scale, just buying used books and coming across. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'll never forget my, um, uh, my college copy of uh, The Great Gatsby um, was annotated by the person who had it before me. And boy, they hated it. They, hated, <laughs> they read the entire thing, but they were just writing, oh, come on, and and crossing things out and saying, like, stupid, that I just wanted to know so much more about this person that read the entire book, but was mad mm. the entire yes. time. Hey, that's marvelous. Yes, no, it's, it's wonderful things like that. It, I mean, I mean, some of the objects, that, or some of the books that I own that, that mean, mean the most to me, or that my wife owns, that means the most to her, you know, she... Um, you know, one of her aunts came came down a few months ago, and gave her this uh, her half her family from Liverpool, and gave her this little paperback book of a history of Liverpool that had her grandmother's ownership inscription in it. I mean, oh. what you know, which is such a you know special and personal thing. It won't mean much to anyone other than her, but having that you know that connection to someone is um, through through a book is is a wonderful feeling. Truly, truly. Well, I could talk to you for ages and ages, but the next thing that happens before the end of the show is recommendations. And I would love to know if you have any recommendations for the listeners. Well, mine's very simple and not at all self-interested, but it's (laughs) go to your local secondhand or antiquarian bookshop and have a look around and see what sort of objects excite you. That's the best way that someone who's listened to this podcast or thought about book collecting before can get into book collecting. Get Go out there and see what you find and see what speaks to you. And that might be a first edition by your favorite author, or it might be something entirely unexpected and surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can get that, you know, that hit I was talking about earlier of discovery by going out and doing that. Um, and if you don't have a, a secondhand or antiquarian bookshop near you, then see if you've got a, a book fair in your area or within striking distance, because there you can go and see the stock of, you know, hundreds of booksellers in one place rather than just one. Um, so yeah, they're my recommendations. And you have, and Yonkers, which is with a J, by mm, the way, yes. for every, everyone uh, typing things at home. And as well, you can, Look, I will give the link in the show notes, but uh, they have a website w- that you put some of the what's available in the store online, yes? Yeah, absolutely. So our website, which is yonkers.k.uk, has the vast majority of our stock on it. As I said before, many, many books sell before they make it up onto the website, you know, because we we know who'd who'd like them or who we're going to sell them to. But our, our website carries a stock of some 2,000 rare books, manuscripts, pieces of artwork. Um, so that's really good if you want to if you want to sort of see what's out there and what the sort of things you can get started in book collecting with. And you you know you might not have somewhere in person you can go, but go to our website and type in your favorite author and see what comes up. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a fun it's fun to just scroll through that website if you are looking for a virtual version of the hit that mm-hmm. we're talking about. Um, I want to recommend, I want to take us into the near future. We've been in the past for a while, but then, um, there's a novel coming out, um, in February that I, I read in, um, 
proof form that I absolutely adored. And I just think that um, people should get on the pre-order train for it. It's called Big Swiss by Jen Began. And it's about a woman who is a, um, is a transcriptionist for a sex therapist and out in the world recognizes one of the peoples who she is transcribing their therapist's um, talk. She recognizes their voice and realizes that she needs to talk to this person in real life as well. And it's a fantastic um, meeting of the minds. Very strange characters, really interesting um, world of this strange um, little town where this all happens. Yes, that, that, that would be like you sitting in a bar and hearing someone hate on The Great Gatsby. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> did you give your copy of The Great Gatsby to a secondhand bookshop, you know, a few years ago? <laughs> Because we need exactly. to talk. <laughs> yeah, I want to know everything about you. Um, well, Tom, this was so great. I'm so glad that um, you could come on to the show. Um, people can go and see all of the books and things that we've mentioned on the website, so many damnbooks.com, and look on the show notes. Um, and I, of course, love it when you give me money on patreon.com slash smdb. Or if you just leave an iTunes review, all of these things are useful but I mostly am just glad that I got a chance to talk to you. This has been absolutely fantastic and everyone should go follow you on TikTok at the very least because it brightens my day every time that I see you, your face scroll by. I have to stop and see what wonderful treasure you're uncovering for everybody. So thank you for that service that you're providing. It's, it's one of my absolute favorite for, um, sources of entertainment. I save them up sometimes and go watch them all in a row. <laughs> Hey, thank you, Christopher. That's that's very kind. And thanks for having me on. It's been really, really fun talking to you. I've enjoyed it a lot. Wonderful. Well, I will be back in two weeks. And if you want to know who I'm having on next, be a Patreon subscriber. And that's how you find out. All right. Thank you, everybody.